Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show. Today, I am joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being, and you probably recognize him because he's been on many, many episodes in the past. Uh, Before we get into today's content, as always, if you like the show and you'd like to support it, there are many ways you could do that. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You could go to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter and join our mailing list. We send out a bunch of updates about new, exciting research pertaining to exercise and nutrition. Uh, you, If you're looking for a coach for one-on-one virtual coaching, we do offer that. If you go to strongerbyscience.com slash coaching, you can get more information about our pricing, our services, and our very talented team of coaches. If you want to get cheap supplements, or inexpensive supplements, I should say, but you want to get them even less expensively. You can go to BulkSupplements.com and use our discount code. That is SBSPOD. It gets you a 5% discount off of your order, and their prices are already very, very reasonable. Uh, and then finally, if you'd like to support the show, uh, you could subscribe to the Mass Research Review, which comes out the first of the month, every single month, covering the newest, most useful research pertaining to exercise and nutrition. Or you could check out Macro Factor. That's the diet app that we co-developed. Uh, it, it's a very, very efficient food locker, food logger. It has automated coaching functions. Very, very nice diet app. And there is a free trial. So you can try it out and see if you like it before you make a financial commitment. Uh, so diving in. Uh, couple- I'm doing well, Eric. Thanks for having me on. How are you? I'm doing great. I, I <laughs> assumed you were doing well. Usually when someone gets an opportunity to come onto a podcast like this, they're over the moon. They're very excited and thrilled at the chance. So I assume that you were in a great a great mood and really happy and just kind of feeling very fortunate and grateful to be here. I am a creature of habit, and I just felt like we needed to get that out there before I felt we were ready to dive in. Okay, well, now that we're both on board and ready to move forward, uh, two things we want to do before we get into the science segments here. Uh, The first thing is a while ago, I published an article about reverse dieting. It was uh, published on on the Macro Factor website, macrofactorapp.com. And I looked at reverse dieting from a very critical perspective. I, I just looked at the evidence and said, okay, of all the claims that are floating around about reverse dieting, what seems to be supported by evidence and what seems to be unsupported And even going a step further, what seems to be directly contradicted by the best evidence we have available. Uh, So that was published, uh, I guess, a couple weeks ago or a few weeks ago. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes if you haven't seen it. It, It's very long, just as a warning. But uh, since we published that article and did a, a podcast segment about it, I have gotten some feedback that I wanted to respond to. And I also wanted to make a pretty important clarification because a number of questions have come up in the last couple weeks. So First of all, talking about some of the kind of criticism or feedback I've gotten, most of the feedback's been been quite positive, which has been very appreciated. Uh, and of course, I, I appreciate uh, critical feedback as well, as long as it's substantive and, and, and very, you know, to the point. Uh, I wanted to respond to a couple things I've seen uh, in some of the feedback. So first of all, some people have said that I was um, a little bit too skeptical about reverse dieting. Uh, and, and basically they said, hey, absence of evidence is not the same thing as evidence of absence. And so what they were getting at there is 
just because, you know, there's no definitive proof in the evidence of reverse dieting working as claimed, that doesn't mean that it necessarily cannot work. Um, and so that's a true statement. Absence of evidence is not the same as evidence of absence or evidence of no effect at all. Um, however, it's difficult to make that argument and, and say, you know, hey, you know, we should look the other way with this reverse dieting stuff because there are literally books and courses about quote unquote evidence-based reverse dieting, right? So one of my claims that is kind of central to the argument is, you know, whether you want to do reverse dieting or not, it's very, very, very difficult to make the argument that this is an evidence-based approach or an evidence-based strategy. Um, I also would argue against the perspective that we have a true absence of evidence here. Um, you know, I found 60 pages of stuff to write about. <laughs> there is uh, evidence that is indirect, but is still highly relevant to the claims that are being made about reverse dieting. So I think that it is incorrect to say, hey, we know absolutely nothing at all about reverse dieting or the relevant claims about it. And therefore, it, it would be inappropriate to have any opinion whatsoever about its about its effectiveness or its efficacy. There. There is evidence to draw upon, and frankly, uh, it all looks pretty bad for a lot of the reverse dieting claims that are out there. Yeah, I, I think the I think just that phrase "absence of evidence" is an evidence of absence. I, I think that that's one of those one of those little things that is technically true, but uh, can be. Uh, a somewhat dangerous idea to get lodged in someone's head if they don't have a, a requisite amount of just like scientific literacy going into it. Sort of the same thing as correlation isn't causation because like those aren't the actual statements. It's absence of evidence isn't necessarily evidence of absence and correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation. Um, but like for for absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. Like there's. I think some people try to use that as like a get out of jail free card mm -hmm. if their pet idea hasn't been validated. But absence of evidence, like I said, the the statement should be isn't necessarily evidence of absence, but it can be. So uh, like a scenario where uh, it, it wouldn't be evidence of absence, like the classic example is there are no RCTs on the efficacy of parachutes to prevent fall deaths when jumping out of a plane. Uh, you know, there there is an absence of RCTs on that, but, you know, I don't think anyone would argue that that absence of evidence is evidence of absence. Like, parachutes clearly work. But uh, imagine an alternate world where there were 30 RCTs on the efficacy of wearing a parachute when you jump out of a plane for, for preventing fall deaths. And let's just say in this world, parachutes don't work. So you run those RCTs, and in every single one, the people without parachutes and the people with parachutes all die at the same rates. You could still say, well, that that's absence of evidence. Like you haven't conclusively proved like, you know, when you're doing null hypothesis testing, like you don't you don't prove the null. You just fail to disprove it. So you could you could say, like, we have an absence of evidence that parachutes work, but like I'm going to keep claiming they do. But that's like in this scenario, you're getting further down the road where this thing has been studied enough that the absence of evidence can start being taken as evidence of absence. 
And I, I think that with reverse dieting, it's more like that scenario. Like th there have been enough studies where if reverse dieting did what it is claimed to do, uh, that would have shown up in, in the research by now. So like it's it's at the point where the absence of evidence is starting to look like evidence of absence. Yeah, yeah. And and I it kind of reminds me of our, our back and forth about P ratios mm -hmm. where like no one uh, to my knowledge, I, I can't think of a study off the top of my head where someone said, we're going to do an RCT and address this head on and, and once and for all solve this very specific question, right? Mm -hmm. But it's along the same lines where we were like, so if this is true, uh, there's a lot of resistance training research and there are many areas in which this should be starting to, this effect, if real and meaningful, should be starting to reveal itself to us in some of these related and indirect studies, right? Mm -hmm. we, we should be getting glimpses of it, hints of it. And we were looking at the evidence saying, we're getting, in some cases, no hints of it. And in some cases, the literal opposite. You know, it, it appeared to be contradicted by the evidence available. Yeah. And I think with reverse dieting, I mean, if you're going to make the argument that we simply don't know much about how weight loss works or how weight regain works, I mean, it's one of the more studied topics in the realm of public health. There, mm -hmm. There is evidence to be dug through. Uh, and, and like I said, it, all roads are, are pointing to a pretty, uh, pretty dissatisfying outcome for reverse dieting. Uh, the other piece of, of uh, criticism I wanted to briefly respond to uh, is, you know, well, in, in figures 10 and 11, you kind of made the assumption that someone was starting from a deficit when, when they begin their reverse diet. They start building up calories from a deficit at the end of the diet. And some people say, well, I go to estimated maintenance calories and then I reverse diet from there. Um, and I think some people made that claim with and I'm not saying this to be a smart ass. I don't think they read the article because that is not a substantive rebuttal to really any primary claim within the article. And so if I was going to take that criticism and restructure the article entirely to accommodate this use case, I'm pretty sure I would achieve that 100% if I just changed the axis labels on figure 10 and figure 11. Uh, so some people kind of lob that out as a like a gotcha, like, ah, well, what if you did this? And I'm like, well, then based on almost all the text I just gave you, it still wouldn't do anything. Yeah. You know, so that those are the two pieces of feedback that I received as criticism. And I was like, I, 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 I think it's valuable to get criticism for your work, but it has to be more substantive than that. Like you, you got to actually engage with the topics a little deeper. Um, so overall... Most of the feedback's been positive. Um, when I look at the user level pushback, so people who are not fitness professionals, they don't make fitness content, but they're just like, hey, you know, I tried reverse dieting and I thought it actually worked better than you're representing here. Um, so far, 100% of those, when they describe their experience, I can just kind of point them to illusions one through four. One of them will apply to their situation. Mm -hmm. So... So far, that's been the case where I just say, yeah, that sounds a lot like illusion number three. And that's kind of the end of it. Um, in terms of professional level pushback, again, I've just kind of been uh, a little bit underwhelmed in the sense that the critical feedback has lacked a lot of substance. It hasn't really said, oh, you made some evidence-based claims with research. I'm going to look at other research and, you know, have a rebuttal with 
a different perspective on the evidence. It's usually just a lot of like deflection or like, well, I don't know. Here's like a vague statement statement about evidence of absence or something. So yeah, that's been um, just really underwhelming. And if anyone does happen to to put together a, a substantive rebuttal to any of the points, you know, obviously I'd be happy to address that and and converse with those individuals. But so far, it it just hasn't really happened. Um, and yeah, it just to to me. I don't know. That's been a slightly frustrating. I don't want to bring the mood down here and 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 be uh, pedantic and annoying, but it is a little bit frustrating when when there are literally people who all of their marketing is about how evidence based they are, and all of their social media content is very self congratulatory. Oh, I'm so evidence based, and then it's like once you present some evidence for for a pet theory, they're like they're just allergic to engaging with evidence. Like I'm, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to respond to it in a substantive way. And I'm certainly not going to look for evidence to actually support this concept. To me, that's a little bit, uh, a little bit disappointing. So, uh, that is all the feedback responses I have, but I do want to make an important clarification because I did get a number of questions from people, um, that were all kind of in the same general genre and it's because I, I I definitely presented an idea without fully clarifying uh, what I was getting at, you know. So I definitely take the L on that one. I should have explained this with a lot more clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked a little bit about preferential fat regain after weight loss, and so a lot of people have said, "Okay, well, if that's the case, like, are you just totally screwed if you do a cut and eventually want to bulk in the future?" You know. So if you're trying to bulk from a body weight or a body fat level that is lower than your previous maximum, does that mean that you're just going to fail and all the weight you gain is going to be fat rather than lean mass? Um, Mm -hmm. And a related question is people say, well, does this mean I need to do a prolonged maintenance phase after a cut before I'm able to bulk again successfully? Um, And again, I just uh, failed to explain that point adequately, but uh, I don't think that someone is just like totally screwed. Like, I, I don't think that bulking is off the table, effective bulking, if you're at a reduced body weight. Um, and I don't think you need to do a maintenance phase necessary. You can, but you don't need to do a maintenance phase between a, a cut and the next bulk. Uh, so definitely preferential fat regain after a weight loss diet has been documented in past research. Um, and that's important. That That gives us valuable information about how a weight reduced body responds to overfeeding, usually, uh, you know, pretty, um, pretty rapid overfeeding or high amounts of overfeeding. But a lot of that research, uh, basically all of it is from people, uh, samples of people who were not lifting weights and therefore had no stimulus for muscle growth, uh, or it's in physique athletes who are very well trained in terms of their, their degree of hypertrophy mm-hmm. and their degree of muscularity. And they're also extremely lean, like getting to near essential body fat levels, you know, as lean as a person would hope to get without serious adverse health consequences. So that that propensity for fat regain is important to recognize, but that, you know, we have to remember that the the uh, success of a bulking phase is going to be dictated uh, very heavily by whether or not you have a sufficient uh, stimulus for substantial hypertrophy, right? And then whether or not you have created conditions that are permissive of hypertrophy. So when we talk about, you know, a really, you know, really muscular physique athlete who is absolutely shredded, 
their post-diet experience and that immediate post-diet phase, it's unlikely that they're going to be doing a, a lot of hypertrophy because they're probably somewhat close to their genetic limit in some cases, you know, mm -hmm. so they don't, they don't have kilograms of muscle tissue to add in a short period of time or, uh, something that is, is more commonly true. Not, a, not every bodybuilder is like at their genetic limit. Right. But if you're getting down to contest shape, you're probably not at a body fat level where precipitous hypertrophy is going to be feasible. You know, a lot of times we get down to that unique physiological state where we are absolutely shredded. And even in our P ratio, uh, investigation with some of the analysis we did people that are in single digit body fat uh, males with single digit body fat it's very challenging for them to gain significant amount of lean mass in the absence of, of fat mass gain right yeah. and so so the conditions for hypertrophy are not very suitable for the physique athlete in that situation and like i said for someone who's not lifting weights the post diet weight regain uh you know it's it's th that propensity exists but we also have to factor in the fact that there is no potent stimulus for muscle hypertrophy there. So in terms of practically speaking, what this means is if you're someone who's not near a genetic limit, you're not absolutely shredded at the end of a diet uh, and you're you're implementing a sufficient training static uh, training uh, stimulus that would elicit a significant amount of hypertrophy. The idea of doing a bulk without substantial fat regain should still be very feasible for you. You know, you are in a set of conditions that is permissive for successful bulking without a ton of fat gain. But in the post-diet window, this is really what I'm getting at with this argument. In the post-diet window, as you're transitioning into that bulking phase and you'd like to avoid fat regain, what I argue is that there's slightly less margin for error in terms of how high you go with your calories, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are doing this bulking phase and you are doing a really good job of matching your caloric intake to the actual true energy cost of the hypertrophy that you're stimulating, you know, so you're not way overshooting it. If you're able to match that up really well, I see no reason why you shouldn't be able to have a really successful bulking phase after a cut where you're not inviting, you know, precipitous fat gain in the process. But the question is, when you go over, what happens, right? And so when we look at the overfeeding literature, we can see that when people are overfeeding from a kind of typical natural body weight, for a lot of people, there's a little bit of a cushion there where total daily energy expenditure will ramp up adaptively to kind of offset overfeeding. Mm -hmm. uh, and that di it differs a lot from person to person. Some people don't have much capacity for that. But at a neutral body weight, for a lot of people, if, they, if they're bulking from a natural body weight uh, and they overshoot a little bit, they might offset some of that overshooting with their calories by, by some adjustments in energy expenditure. But, but what I argue is based on the, the, over, or the, uh, the preferential fat regain that we observe in these studies, it's exceedingly unlikely that you're going to have that same uh, buffer, that same margin of error after a weight loss diet. So so what I'm arguing here is you absolutely can go straight from a cut into a successful lean bulking phase, but the margin for error is a little bit tighter after, you know, when when you're bulking in a weight reduced state. So you probably want to take it a little bit slower. You want to make sure you have a really robust stimulus for hypertrophy in the mix. Make sure you have a, you know, a really effective training program in place. You want to take that cut slower a little bit more conservative, smaller increase in calories so that you're really effectively matching the true energy cost of that muscle building process 
with the, the energy that you're taking in. Because if you overshoot it, that's where we see that this preferential fat regain seems to be a, a little bit more of a pertinent issue. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I, I think just one one thing to add just kind of uh, conceptually is, is one of the things we've talked about on the podcast before is recomping. Mm-hmm. How, uh, it, at least until fairly recently, it seemed like a lot of folks just kind of assumed that that was either a myth or like, basically impossible out of outside of just completely untrained folks um but yeah no there's there's evidence that like even people with some prior training experience can still gain muscle in a calorie deficit so just kind of extending that uh like of course you can gain muscle if you are kind of at the end of a calorie deficit and add more calories into the mix like there i i don't see a reason to assume that that should be impossible uh, outside of those pretty extreme circumstances you talked about, like for example, a physique competitor who's just super shredded and their body just really wants to regain fat because it's not healthy to be that lean. Right. Yeah. And I, I think this is kind of a glaring example of one of the biggest conceptual issues I have with reverse dieting, which is that uh, if you ever read someone's content promoting it, you know, if it's if it's you know an article, the first section, or if it's a book, the first chapter often says hey when you diet metabolic adaptation happens all these physiological changes happen uh the post-diet period is a very very unique physiological state that has to be approached strategically and then when they get to the chapter where they say reverse dieting works they're basing it entirely on overfeeding studies and people who are not in that physiological state Mm -hmm. so like the entire setup for the problem the entire premise they say this is a very unique state that has to be navigated very strategically. And then literally the evidence they're using is like, so let's assume that this isn't a unique physiological state. Yeah. Yeah. Why? That's a good question. All right. Not a question for you. I'm not going to hold your, <laughs> your feet to the fire. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, you, I, I saw this on your uh, Twitter, I think. Uh, a incredible feat of strength. Uh, you should be the one to present this since you found it. Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, Jamal Browner, uh, who is a uh, 110 kilo or 242 pound uh, competitor in powerlifting, uh, recently pulled 500 kilos in training. That is 1,102 pounds for Americans listening um, with straps. But it does seem like he's uh, he's worked a lot of his grip issues out. So previously, like I, I think... Uh, Back when back when the feats of strength segment was a more uh, back when it was an every episode type deal, uh, and Jamal Browner was just really putting up crazy numbers in the gym. Uh, pretty frequently, he would pull something just ridiculous with with straps. But then I think at the time his best competition pull was still like eight forty eight or something, which is still a ridiculous deadlift. But he was pulling close to a thousand with straps. Seemed like he had grip issues with really max weights. Um, seems like he's really figured out his hook grip. Like I, I think he pulled north of a thousand in a competition recently. Um, so yeah, I mean, even with straps, like over 1100 pounds is absolutely wild. And if it, if his grip issues are truly sorted out, I mean, seeing a 500 kilo deadlift, uh, at 110 in a competition at some point would just be absolutely wild. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you, you should check out the video. Uh, very solid pull, clean lockout. 
uh, one of the more impressive lifts I've seen in my entire life. Do you ever get over, as someone who's been, you know, you've had your ear to the ground with powerlifting for a long time now, Mm -hmm. does it ever get less crazy to see the numbers people are lifting now? (laughs) No. (laughs) It it doesn't make any sense to me. No. I remember, I, I know I've said this before, but like in 2012, I squatted 500 at a meet, uh, weighing in the 170s, and I felt like a literal god. Like it was like one of the lifts at the meet that was like, wow, that's a that's a pretty impressive lift. Yeah, and dude, like no one would be remotely impressed by that these days. Yeah, like, it's just crazy to see the way that the numbers have moved. I mean, back in the day, if like regardless of body weight. If you could squat like 600 pounds, people were like, holy shit, that yeah. person's incredibly strong. Yeah. And now there there are a handful of people doing that at like 183. I know. Which is just just absolutely wild. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, I think we're, we're clear to dive into the content uh, and, and your segment is up first. So what do you got for us? Yeah. So uh, I am talking about the extent to which... Uh, gains in in muscle mass and strength differ between individuals and, and just uh fitness in general increases in fitness level i'm, I'm going to talk about uh variability in gains in aerobic fitness as well um but yeah like i i wanted to talk about this because i think people often severely underestimate uh the extent to which just gains in muscle strength general fitness levels following a training program differ between people um and i think that there are some negative outcomes of that one is i think that uh folks who maybe respond to training worse than average uh but not to any sort of like concerning or or crazy degree you know like they're there they maybe have like a 30th percentile uh type response to resistance training which is a, a completely normal response uh they look at say averages or people showing up on their social media feed who typically are going to be above average that's why folks find them interesting and therefore the algorithm is promoting them to you and they think oh no like i'm doing something terribly wrong um and, you know, w- what I'm experiencing is very atypical, but it's not like 30th percentile. Like that's, that's not out of the ordinary at all. Um, so yeah, like to hopefully give some of those folks peace of mind and also just to, uh, kind of help people get grounded, uh, for, for being able to better evaluate things they see in their own training, uh, gains their training partners make uh stuff they see on social media etc so just just basically to to put people on firmer footing to better understand the sorts of variability you should expect to see in training responses uh and then also towards the end of this segment i'm going to talk about if you are someone who responds to training worse than the typical person like you know i would anticipate that this probably applies to about 50 percent of folks in the audience give or take um, some, some things that you can potentially do about that to, uh, either make better gains or to maybe find a bit more contentment in the gains that you do see. Cool. Yeah. So, um, 
first off to start with the thing that the the thing that kind of got me thinking that I should make this segment is in the stronger by science subreddit uh w- when we were on summer break uh there was a thread someone posted that that was basically asking about this general topic um saying that they had gone back through the podcast archives and they uh had seen some content around uh around this general subject floating around in the ether and they were like ah but it's a shame greg and eric have never discussed this in depth uh but i had um so there's an article on stronger by science that was published i think in 2015 2016 on this precise subject uh but that was before the podcast existed and at this point more people listen to the podcast than than read articles on the site which is totally fine uh so it, it hadn't occurred to me that a pretty good chunk of our audience probably hadn't come in contact with this information. So part of this segment is just going to be restating some of the content from that article, uh, but it will take it a step further and a step deeper. Uh, but the the Stronger by Science article on this topic will be linked in the show notes. So just to start with, just to give you uh, a general idea of the extent to which uh, hypertrophy following a resistance training program can differ between people. I'm going to start by just briefly talking about a study by Bauman and colleagues from 2007. Uh, and all of the sources that I reference will be linked in the show notes if you want to check them out. Uh, title of this paper was Cluster Analysis Tests the Importance of Myogenic Gene Expression During Myofiber Hypertrophy in Humans. So in this study, there were 66 subjects. They all went through a 16-week training program, training their quads three times per week. Um, and afterwards, the authors or the, the researchers did a cluster analysis where they basically looked to see, uh, like, they they split out the people who basically had, like, 25th to 75th percentile type gains, the people in the bottom uh, quartile and the people in the top quartile looking at uh, gains in fiber cross-sectional area just to see how, you know, results differed between individuals. And so in this study, after everyone went through the exact same training program for 16 weeks, uh, the bottom quartile of responses, on average, these people, their their quad fibers did not increase in cross-sectional area uh, at all, on average. Like, the, the mean change was zero square micrometers. Uh, for the uh, who they termed modest responders, kind of the the middle 50th percentile, so from 25th to 75th percentile, uh, the average increase in fiber cross-sectional area for the vastus lateralis was like a thousand square micrometers, and for who they termed the extreme responders, who I really wouldn't call extreme responders, we're talking about people from the 75th to 100th percentile, so. 75th percentile that's that's nothing extreme um but yeah who they termed the extreme responders the increase in fiber cross-sectional area was a little bit over 2,000 square micrometers so just going from essentially the median to kind of what the top 20 25 percentiles see that's like a two-fold difference in gains uh and the person who experienced the most uh hypertrophy in this study uh it was like 32 3300 square micrometers so there the gains that that individual saw were like three three and a half times better than average so that's 
you know, just to just to kind of get your feet wet on the the sort of variability we tend to see. And if you're if you're watching on YouTube, uh, you can look at the screen. Uh, a figure from the study will be there looking for or looking at you. This is really convenient the way that the numbers uh, kind of cluster around numbers because it's like the the lower I, I love it when numbers cluster around numbers. Well, yeah, that was an <laughs> eloquent way of saying it. But let, let me uh, try to explain that more. So like the the approximate average for the lower response group was like zero. Yeah. And then they were nice round numbers. So like the middle responder groups, it was like a thousand. So it's like zero hypertrophy units or one. And then up around 2000, you know, a nice doubling is where you get the kind of high response groups. And then up around 3000, like a, a tripling of the average approximately yeah. is where you get the like, basically like the the real outlier, right? Yeah. Like the, the, the person that you see on Instagram and you're like, there's no way they're natty, right? Well, and I mean... I would even push back against that because this study had 16 subjects. Like, yeah. that's not the sort of sample you'd need to find true outliers. Well, yeah, yeah, like w- that, within this sample. Though. Yeah, th- yeah, that's someone with like one out of 66 type response, not one in a million. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, another, I think, probably even better study that looked at this uh, classic paper by Hubel and colleagues from 2005. Title is Variability in Muscle Size and Strength Gain After Unilateral Resistance Training. The reason this is a particularly good uh, study is because it is a particularly huge study. So it was 585 subjects all going through the same biceps training intervention over three months. And again, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the hypertrophy results now. Uh, the the typical change in biceps cross-sectional area was like 15-20% for both the male and female subjects, but the people who had the worst response to the training uh, actually experienced a small decrease in biceps cross-sectional area, uh, and, and these were completely untrained folks. So, you know, you should expect most people to experience at least some hypertrophy, but the people with the very, very worst responses actually saw small decreases and then the people with the very, very best responses experienced increases in biceps cross-sectional area in excess of 55%. So, you know, we're talking about untrained folks going to the gym for the first time, training for three months, and their biceps getting 50% larger. Um, and th- as you pointed out with the prior study, like the best response was about three times the average response. And that's more or less what we see here. Like the average response was gains of 15, 20%. The best responses were like 50, 60%. So about three times better than average. Uh, And then also the study assessed changes in maximum voluntary contraction strength of the biceps. So just elbow flexion MVCs. And you see uh, a pretty normal distribution here as well. With most people experiencing gains in elbow flexion strength of around 20%, so so that was approximately the average, with a handful of people experiencing small decreases, a handful of people experiencing increases in the 70 to 90% range, and one subject experiencing an increase of 145%, which... I'll note, I don't take that completely at face value. I kind of think they probably just had a bad pretest number, like just not a great test, because uh, that's that's a pretty extreme outlier. But in, in yeah. terms of just the general variability we see, very similar to hypertrophy. Yeah. Um, 
And it it is tough with with uh, MVC, uh, you know, with an isometric test like this, because mm-hmm. um, I think some people will say, "Well, what do you mean a bad baseline test?" You know, but it can be difficult, especially with untrained folks. Like it's pretty easy with a bench press because it's like, well, you're going to unrack the bar, and it's either going to pin you to the bench or it isn't, mm-hmm. right? But w- with an MVC test, it's like, okay, push as hard as you can against this pad. And by the way, you never do leg extensions, but push against this as a leg extension as hard as you possibly can and then you just have to say like was that did you do your best and they're like yeah and they're like are you are you certain though and like you can have some some things in place to try to uh alleviate the shortcomings of that to the best of your ability but sometimes you do just get a, a crappy baseline test well yeah and when you're assessing 585 subjects the odds of having one bad test in there is around a hundred percent right yeah yeah uh so yeah so that's talking about hypertrophy and strength to this point uh like i said i i'm gonna touch on aerobic fitness as well um so a, a classic study the heritage study uh from i think it started in in maybe the late 80s uh through the 90s and this uh it, the heritage study itself is really cool if, if you're someone who's interested in uh, aerobic training in general, heritability of uh, trainability and and general fitness characteristics. Uh, the heritage study was a huge trial, absolute classic, definitely worth looking into. Um, but the particular paper resulting from that study uh, that I'm going to talk about here, title was Familial Aggregation of VO2 Max Response to Exercise Training, colon, results from the heritage study from Bouchard and colleagues in 1999. Uh, This study, very similar to the Hubal study, big sample size, 481 total subjects, previously sedentary, um, and they completed 20 weeks of a standardized uh, aerobic training program on a cycle ergometer twice per week. And the researchers assessed absolute VO2 max uh, before and after training. So not mLs per kg per minute, but just total mLs per minute. Um, and the the typical gains in this study were around 400 mLs uh, uh, gain in VO2 max. But we see the same sort of normal distribution here as well with the people, again, previously sedentary subjects, uh, people who... When you put them on an aerobic training program, you should expect to see gains in aerobic fitness. The people with the absolute worst responses actually experienced small decreases in aerobic fitness, and the people who had the absolute best responses increased their absolute VO2 max by more than a liter per minute. So uh, about two and a half times uh, as large of gains as the average. So similar types of variability as we see with hypertrophy and strength, um, which is to say very, very substantial variability. Uh, and then finally to, uh, address gains in hypertrophy in a pretty systematic way. Um, I happen to have, uh, a, a little bit of information on hand from the Barbalio investigation. Uh, we did a couple years ago. The details of that aren't worth getting into here. That would be a huge diversion, huge rabbit hole. Look at um, us practicing restraint. Yeah, I, a new I'm, thing for I'm the doing podcast. My best. Uh, by the way, you did a really good job editing the last episode. Oh, thank you. Uh, for the listeners, I got very sidetracked <laughs> on some dumb bullshit during Eric's segment, 
uh, and I felt very bad about it, but hopefully you didn't notice because that, Eric is that's great That's the editor. magic of editing. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so if you're interested in uh, learning more about statistics and how one might go about uh, looking into sketchy looking research maybe check out the article it'll be linked in the show notes uh but one of the things that that we were interested in in that investigation was what is the typical variability we see in strength gains after uh a resistance training program the reason we were interested in this is the studies by barbalio and colleagues reported uh very very low variability in strength gains like you know, if a training program added 20 kilos to people's squats on average, they might report like 20 plus or minus two kilos. Like basically everyone gained between 15 and 25 kilos without much variability, which seemed pretty low. So uh, we had an archive of like 83 studies that, that I had uh, looked into for just like various meta-analysis projects previously. So it was an unbiased sample that we weren't just cherry picking for the purposes of this particular investigation um, where we could basically look and see like, hey, in in the literature as a whole, in a pretty large group of studies, what is the typical variability we see in strength gains? Uh, and that was quantified in terms of what's called a Cohen's DZ value, um, which all that is is average gains in a particular strength measure divided by the standard deviation for the gains. So, for example, if in a study people put 20 plus or minus 10 kilos on their bench press, that's mean of 20 divided by standard deviation of 10. That's a Cohen's DZ value of 2. So, the typical Cohen's DZ value we saw kind of the weighted average from this whole sample of studies was about 1.6. Uh, and so just to put that in context, uh, a Cohen's DZ value of 1.6 means that if there's a training intervention where the typical gain or the average gain in strength is 20 kilos, that means within one standard deviation, you're looking at uh, on the low end, a gain of 7.5 kilos, and on the top end, a gain of 32.5 kilos. So we're we're certainly not talking about outliers here. Just within one standard deviation of the mean, you're looking at uh, a, a difference in strength gains of more than fourfold. So you know, a, an increase of 32 and a half kilos is more than four times greater than seven and a half kilos. So that's again just within a single standard deviation. Within two standard deviations, you're looking at on the low end a decrease of five kilos up to an increase of 45 kilos. And so that's that's normal shit. Again, we're not talking about outliers here. We're talking from the 2.5th percentile up to the 97.5 percentile. Uh, so that's kind of where most normal responses would fall. So, you know, uh, that's... I, I, I think of that, though. Think of the, the number of people who, if it's like you and your training partner hypothetically you're both pretty similar at baseline you both do the same program together one person gains 42 kilograms the other person loses three and it's like yeah that that that, that checks out yeah like th those those seem like extreme responses but we're again we're staying within two standard deviations of the mean here like yeah. that's that's just perfectly normal stuff that you would observe all the time 
and then just in terms of not so much gains in strength, gains in muscle, gains in aerobic fitness, but just kind of like real world data on how strong people actually are. So back in 2015, I sent out a survey to the Stronger by Science audience um, asking, you know, basically, hey, if you're training pretty hard for uh, either powerlifting specifically or like powerlifting style training, fill out this survey. Uh, There were a lot of things in the survey, but one of the things I asked about or two of the things I asked about were how long have you been training and what is your one rep max squat bench and deadlift? Um, and I, I want to talk about this, just variability in terms of how strong people actually are relative to how long they've been training. Because I think that there's um, an unfortunate facet of the strength training content landscape is the concept of strength standards tables, um, which I think outside of competitive environments are virtually worthless. Like if if you are actually competing in powerlifting and you might want to know if you're like a class three lifter or a master level lifter or whatever, like you can look at those tables and see how you stack up because there's a purpose there. Like that's that's saying how relatively competitive are you compared to your peers in the sports you compete in. But most strength standards tables are like, hey, a novice benches this much. An intermediate level lifter benches this much. An expert level lifter benches this much. Just kind of assuming that how strong you are is a pure uh, function of simply how long you've been training without really accounting for virtually anything else, including just how well people respond to training. Like you, you could be an expert level trainee who just responds pretty poorly to resistance training on average. You put in, you know, 20 years under the bar, uh, you know what you're doing. You've, you've gotten the gains that are available to you, but those gains are just smaller than other folks. And it could be demoralizing to look at a table like that and say, Oh, well, you're, you're a early intermediate level deadlifter. Um, yeah, you, you've been a, a beginner for 13 years. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that those are, are generally unhelpful simply because of the variability we see in terms of how strong people get when they're actually training pretty hard to get strong. So uh, again, like within this one survey, within our audience, with, I will note, a biased sample. Like, So I'm not saying that this is how strong the average person gets when after they've been training for X period of time. Like these are people who are training with the express intent of trying to get as strong as possible in squat, bench, and deadlift. So, you know, th- this probably won't generalize to the typical gym you go to unless you happen to train at a powerlifting gym. Uh, but just to give some examples here, after six to 12 months of training, the the typical male or like the average uh, one rep max squat strength for a male lifter uh, in this survey was about 150 kilos, which makes sense. Um, you know, from spending a lot of time coaching powerlifters, training in powerlifting gyms, if a new lifter comes in and they they devote themselves to lifting pretty hard, you know, three plate squat within a year, like that's that's a very realistic thing that that you see all the time. Um, 
But yeah, the, the average was like 150 kilos, which is 330 pounds. But the standard deviation was like 35 kilos. So when you go plus or minus two standard deviations from the mean, the bottom end of that range is 176 pounds, about 80 kilos. And the top end of that range is about 220 kilos or about 485 pounds. So, you know, we're not, again, even talking about outliers here, but some people after six to 12 months, like not to be a hater, they're still just not particularly strong. Like if, if you put in a year under the bar and your one rep max is still 175, like, uh, you know, you might be looking around at your peers and say like, man, they, it seems like other people are gaining strength faster than me. Is, is there something wrong here? And I would say probably not. I mean, you're, you're not an outlier on the low end. Uh, you just have a smaller than average response to resistance training. And on the top end, like, yeah, like I, I know a handful of people who've squatted close to 500 or over 500 within their first year of lifting. Um, and those folks are just very fortunate, but again, we're not even talking about outliers here. Like that's like the 97.5 percentile, uh, similar number, similar numbers for women after six to 12 months of lifting, uh, the average squat was 90 kilos. So that's about 200 pounds. Uh, but anything from 30 kilos or 66 pounds up to 150 kilos or 330 pounds were perfectly normal responses. Again, that's within two standard deviations of the mean. So, like, just in terms of how strong people get after training for comparable periods of time, there's huge, huge variability here. And again, just to reiterate, I'm not talking about outliers. I'm talking about plus or minus two standard deviations from the mean, which is where most people fall. And so, if you're concerned, like, hey, I, I seem to be experiencing smaller strength gains than most people am I atypical? Is something wrong? Probably not. Like you probably fall within this sort of range I'm talking about. Uh, there, there's a very, very good, uh, probability that you do. So the next question here is, is why, why do we see this amount of variability in responses to training, uh, resistance training, aerobic training, etc.? And it's hard to say for, for methodological reasons, but uh, one of the contributors almost assuredly is just genetics. Like some people, like they, they just got a better genetic draw for training than other people did. Like if you look at professional athletes in just about any sport, they pick better parents for, for their sport than you did. And that's why they're a pro and you're not. Um, but it's hard to say, it's hard to put a super precise estimate on exactly the extent to which genetics per se uh, influence these things. And this is beyond the scope of this segment. Um, but I am somewhat skeptical of like super precise estimates of heritability. Um, just because like, just because of like the methodology of how those studies work. And, and like I said, that's that's too big of a, of a rabbit hole to go down. Um, but like the, the way that you would typically try to estimate the heritability of a particular trait is you look to see, uh, when, when people go on the same sort of training intervention, how similar are responses in people who are closely related. So parents and their children, 
siblings, twins, etc., compared to people who aren't related. So, you know, random person here, random person from some completely different family. And you just kind of aggregate that and look to see, do people who are related have responses to training that are more similar than people who aren't related on average? And if you see more similarity in family clusters versus people outside of those family clusters, that that very strongly uh, suggests that there's a genetic component. Um, and, and that's what we see in all of this stuff. And like I said, I, I don't like th this is like we, we talk about sometimes on the podcast taking research seriously versus literally. I don't take the precise heritability estimates literally, but I do think you can take them seriously. Yeah. Um, so there's very good evidence that there is a genetic component to all of this stuff, but it's hard to say precisely how large it is. Um, but I mean, the genetic component is there. So uh, one example is as of 2011, uh, 22 specific genes had been discovered that were uh, strongly associated with a, quote, strength power phenotype. Moving beyond genetics, uh, other things certainly matter as well. Uh, you know, determining or being related to how well you're, you'll respond to training. So, you know, are you taking care of nutrition? Do you have lifestyle factors that uh, generally promote gains in fitness or generally detract from them? Like, are you sleeping enough? Do you simply have enough time to train? Uh, is your life so stressful that you can't recover particularly well? All of those things will certainly matter. Um, and then specifically for uh, hypertrophy, there are a lot of little things that we know to be predictive, at least in some circumstances, of how well people will respond to a hypertrophy stimulus. Uh, and, and citations for all of these will be in the show notes. But for example... Satellite cell and myonuclei responses seem to be predictive of uh, hypertrophy responses. So people who have larger elevations in satellite cell content and greater myonuclear accretion following training tend to experience more hypertrophy than those who don't. Um, particular microRNA responses seem to be predictive of training responses. That's from a 2014, I believe, study by Davidson and colleagues. Uh, ribosome biogenesis seems to be predictive, uh, which th that one makes a lot of intuitive sense. If you think back to high school biology, ribosomes are the actual little like cellular machines that build proteins. And so that's kind of like a precondition for being able to build a lot of additional new contractile protein in your muscles. So if two people undergo the same training stimulus and one of them only has a small elevation in ribosome content in their muscles and one of them has a large elevation in ribosome content of their muscles, who knows why those uh, ribosome <laughs> responses differ. But if they do, the one who winds up with more ribosomes will just have more little cellular machines that are capable of building those proteins that their DNA is asking them to build. Uh, particular myokine responses seem to be predictive of gains in hypertrophy and, uh, androgen receptor density. Although androgen levels themselves within the normal physiological range might be associated with hypertrophy, but don't, don't actually seem to be uh, all that predictive, but androgen receptor density, uh, does seem to be. And those are just things we know, and th there are probably 
half a dozen or more additional things that are all associated with how well you'll respond to training that just simply haven't been discovered yet. Um, And also these aren't all independent things. Like they are also probably associated with your genetics and your lifestyle. So uh, there are plenty of things that can influence how well someone will respond to training. Um, and, And just one other thing I guess to acknowledge here is at least when we're talking about the research on response variability to training, one of the things that needs to be acknowledged is uh, the potential impact of measurement error or just day-to-day biological fluctuations. So, you know, if um, let's say that you undergo a training program and in real terms, you put five pounds on your bench over 10 weeks or something like that. So not a not a huge gain in strength, but you you did increase strength. Like if you went to the gym at the start of the program on the absolute best conceivable day for testing your bench press, maybe you could do 185 pounds. And also under optimal circumstances after the training program, you could do 190 pounds. But, you know, let's say during the the pre-testing assessments, things just weren't going your way. Uh, or no, no, it's the opposite. Uh, let's say during the pre-training uh, assessment, everything was going your way. You felt great. Um, you know, you're... Everything was just firing right. Your strength was there. And you do hit 185. And it's a very good strength test. And then let's say 10 weeks later, you are like your your kind of true, unbiased, like getting rid of day-to-day fluctuations. Your actual strength has gone up five pounds. But let's just say that on the day that the post-training assessment occurred, it just wasn't your day. You had a shitty night of sleep the night before, uh, like Maybe your shoulder feels tight for no apparent reason. You just slept on it funny. Uh, your your girlfriend or boyfriend just broke up with you. Like, you don't feel good when you walk into the lab. They test your bench press strength, and it's just not a good day in the gym, and you hit 180. So, you know, the result from that study would suggest your bench press strength went down 5 pounds, but in real terms, it actually went up 5 pounds, and you just had a bad a bad day of testing. So... Some of the variability we see in responses to training are almost assuredly due to stuff like that, just basic measurement error or day-to-day fluctuations in strength uh, or general performance. But like, I want to make this very clear. The magnitude of different responses we see between people are way larger than could be attributed to just technical measurement error or day-to-day fluctuations in strength. Like if, if, one person is experience of experiencing a five kilo decrease in squat strength, and one person experiences a 50 kilo increase in squat strength. Those two people didn't experience the same strength gains and just had a good or bad day of testing pre or post. Like that's th- those are true, like very quantifiable differences between people. But I, I did just want to make that note because, uh, you know, when you're talking about any of this stuff, like it's important to keep stuff like measurement error or just day-to-day fluctuations in mind. But those factors like that can account to anywhere close to the sheer magnitude of of variation we see. All right. So uh, the next and and final uh, section here is, is what can we do about this stuff? So if you are someone who has been training for a while, you you think you're training pretty smart, you think you're training pretty hard, 
Uh, you're doing training that should be effective, but you just look around and you think, man, like I, I just don't seem to be experiencing the gains that a lot of other people in my gym are, my training partners are. I don't seem to be getting the responses to training that I see elsewhere on social media. What are some things that I could potentially do to help rectify that and, and start making better gains? Um, so the first thing you can do, uh, and, and this is, eh, may sound like a bit of a cop-out, but it's true, is just try to make sure you have your ducks in a row outside the gym. So, you know, if you're not experiencing particularly large strength gains, training doesn't seem to be going well, but you're consistently sleeping four or five hours per night, uh, just because you're getting up to tomfoolery, you can't turn off Netflix, can't get off social media, like, your lifestyle would theoretically allow you to sleep eight or nine hours per night, but just just due to sheer pigheadedness, you're sleeping five hours per night. Like, I don't know, maybe try to address that before you say like, ah, I just don't respond well to training. Um, or, you know, if you uh, have the means to consume like 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body mass, but uh, you just don't like to, and so you're consuming like 40 grams of protein per day. Eh, you know, if you're not experiencing much muscle growth, that could be contributing. So uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like everyone has the same capacity to fully get their ducks in a row outside the gym. Like, you know, if if poor sleep and recovery is uh, leading to smaller strength gains, less muscle growth, but the reason that you're not sleeping as much is because you recently had kids or because you have to work two jobs to make ends meet, or any number of other things. Like, you know, I I, I don't want to make it sound like, oh yeah, like, if you don't do, if you don't uh, design your lifestyle to look like a professional athlete, it's because you don't want it bad enough. Like, I, I'm certainly not saying that. But to to the extent that is feasible, if there are ways that you can improve your nutrition, improve your recovery that you simply haven't done to this point, even though they're they're feasible and reasonable for you to do so, maybe try those things first. Yeah, that, that really hits close to home right now because as you know, um, we had a, a hurricane rolling into town. Mm -hmm. And so what does my girlfriend do? She just leaves. You know, she just gets <laughs> out of town and leaves me with the cat. Unbelievable. You know? So I'm over here trying to take care of the cat. It's it's a full-time job trying to take care of one cat. So like my sleep, my schedule, it's all out the window, you know. So I'm I'm doing my best, but man, chasing Izzy around the house has not it's, been easy. It's tough to be a single dad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so the next thing you can do and this this is going to sound quite obvious, um but it it needs to be said is just keep training. So if you're experiencing relatively small or relatively slow gains in fitness, uh, gains in strength, gains in muscle mass, etc. Small gains do add up over time. Um, and, you know, that that is almost self-evidently true, but let's bring, bring a study into it just so we can look at some data. Uh, so this study is from Ross and colleagues from 2015. The title is Separate Effects of Intensity and Amount of Exercise on inter-individual cardiorespiratory fitness response. Uh, and so in this group, uh, or in this study, three different groups of people trained five times per week for 24 weeks. Uh, one of the groups basically just trained easy. So in, in each of their training sessions, um, the total amount of work they did was relatively small. 
and they performed it at a low intensity. In another group, uh, they also exercised at a low intensity, but uh, the total volume of work they did was twice as large as the first group. And then the third group, uh, they did a lot of work per session, and they also trained at a higher intensity than the other two groups. And what you see in all three groups, so they, they assessed cardiorespiratory fitness at four weeks, eight weeks, 16 weeks, and 24 weeks. And in all three groups, what you see is that after just four weeks of training, there were qu quite a few individuals in every group that would be classified as non-responders, uh, including the group that was doing quite a lot of training, so a high volume of training and at a high intensity. Um, 11 out of 31 subjects would have been classified as non-responders after four weeks. Uh, and in the group, basically just training easy, so low intensity and uh, a low total volume of training, uh, 20 out of 34 subjects would have been classified as non-responders. So th those were people who experienced uh, either increases or decreases in aerobic fitness that were smaller than the than the typical measurement error for the equipment they were using. But then after 24 weeks of training in the really easy training group, the number of non-responders had gone down from 20 to 15. In kind of that middle group, the higher volume of low-intensity training, the number of non-responders had gone down from 25 to just 9. And in the high-intensity and high-volume group, the number of non-responders had gone down from 11 to 0. So, you know, just simply continuing the same training intervention will just lead to larger gains over time. Um, as long as you are making progress, progress adds up. Uh, and, and this isn't like over like a four-year timeline. I mean, we're, we're talking about 24 weeks, right? Yeah, yeah so it's, six months. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next thing you can do if you're not experiencing the, the sorts of gains you would like to see is, and, and again, like this will potentially seem obvious, but again, it, it bears saying, is just to train more or train harder. So the, the prior study is a great illustration of this, uh, the, the paper by Ross. So, you know, as the amount of training increases, so the total volume, and as the intensity of training increased, the average gains in cardiorespiratory fitness got larger, and the proportion of people who would have been classified as non-responders got smaller. Uh, another study that I'm pretty sure we've talked about on the podcast before uh, also relates to this. This was by Montero and Lundby in 2017. Title is Refuting the Myth of Non-Response to Exercise Training, colon, Non-Responders Do Respond to Higher Dose of Training. That, that's a good way to get people to read your paper or talk about it is yes. when your first thing is refuting the myth of blank. Yeah, j just like a, a really strong audacious declaratory statement at minimum that's going to get people to click on your study and, and it's i i said that a little bit facetiously but i i genuinely do appreciate it because like we go through the journal sweep every month for mass and we you know we sort it by title and there's no fewer than like 75 studies that that just start with effects of some boring shit on some other shit yeah you know yeah. so i i appreciate a, a bold title oh for sure uh i i mean look Clickbait works, folks. Whether you, <laughs> whether you like it or not, and we're to, like buzz or like clickbait works just as well in on PubMed as it does on BuzzFeed or like YouTube. Like yeah. it, it's generalizably true. We live in the world of clickbait. It's time to just accept it. Um, you know, 
here's the deal as well. Like occasionally we'll put a clickbait title on something and people in the comments, like not many, but occasionally they'll be like, ah, this is clickbait. You clicked on it though. That's (laughs) that's all I'm saying. Like, congratulations. You played yourself. It worked. Yeah. Um, Anyway. So in this study, there were five groups of people uh, who trained for six weeks uh, at 60 minutes per session and uh, the groups either trained one, two, three, four, or five times per week. And so basically the total volume of training and, and training intensity was the same in all five groups. So the total of volu- total volume of training was simply determined by how many days per week they were training. Uh, and they found that for the groups training one, two, and three times per week, there were a, a reasonable number of folks who were non-responders in those groups. Again, people experiencing gains in aerobic fitness that were smaller than the measurement error for for the device being used to assess fitness. Uh, And there were more non-responders training once per week than twice per week, and more non-responders training twice per week than three times per week. And there were no people who would would have been classified as non-responders in the four and five times per week groups. Uh, And then in the second part of the study... They took the folks who were classified as non-responders during the first six weeks and said, hey, you're going to do six more weeks of training, but you're going to do an additional two sessions per week. So if you were previously just training once per week, now you're going to train three times per week. If you were training two times per week, now you're going to train four times per week. And if you were training three times per week, now you're going to be training five times per week. So those same people who were previously deemed non-responders following their first six weeks of training, uh, they just do more training for another six weeks. And uh, TLDR, uh, none of them were non-responders anymore. Just increasing the dose of exercise increased the extent to which they responded to it. And like this, this likely generalizes to resistance training as well. Like we know that uh, training volume is a factor that is strongly associated with hypertrophy responses. So, you know, if you're if you're not seeing the muscle growth you want and your training is overall fairly low volume, like you'll probably respond better to training by increasing that volume a little bit. All right. Uh, so those those are, I think, the most obvious things you could do. Just uh, stick at it. Uh, try to get your ducks in a row outside the gym. And uh, just try training more. Yeah, I was smiling because I I know someone's going to get in the comments and say like, oh, Greg, thanks for the evidence-based segment that tells people to to do more and do better. Yeah, I mean, but like that is true. Uh, But like I, I, I do think it's worth. So a dynamic that I think exists is um, like folks who respond worse to training than most people on average uh like if they do say anything about it uh or you know maybe complain about it a little bit like they'll often be met with just a wall of responses saying like well have you tried trying like yeah like why don't you just train harder um and like that i think is often meant in kind of a um what's the way not off-putting what like it, it's it's just like kind of in a dismissive way yeah um so what i'm at least attempting to do here is to not assume that 
everyone who's responding worse to training than average isn't trying and isn't putting in the work. Um, like I, I fully, I fully believe they are and they, they just got a bad genetic draw and like, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I'm trying to say like couched within that context, unfortunately it is still true that training more will probably be beneficial. And I don't mean that in like a dismissive way. Like I just mean it in a, it is probably true way. Yeah. And, and we've mentioned in the past uh, in various places that we do tend to lean toward the empiricist perspective when it comes to, you know, reviewing evidence. And mm-hmm. I do think it's it's beneficial. It's very easy to say, well, if you just do it for longer, I assume it will start working. I think it is very reassuring to say, oh, yeah, here is empirical evidence of people who in the first phases of training struggled but those gains did materialize over time. Like it, it is nice to have that confirmation, even though it's not a dazzling theory of do it for longer. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean, a, a good chunk of science is just confirming things that we already very strongly suspected to be true. Yeah. And this is just kind of in that category. Yeah. All right. Uh, so the fourth thing you could do is just measure more variables. Um, here is another nice, uh, strong declaratory audacious statement from churchward vin and colleagues in 2015 title of the study is there are no non-responders to resistance type exercise training in older men and women um you, you know it's another great thing about titles start start started to uh butt in here but yeah not only are they more fun and clickable but if you were the type of person who only reads abstracts with this one, you don't even have to do that. That is true. You just read the title. Correct. Say, wow, I, I know everything I wanted to know. Yeah, I, and I mean, the, the title itself is a pretty good TLDR. Um, so in this study, it was a retrospective analysis of responses to 12 and 24 weeks of training in uh, men and women who were at least 65 years old at the start of the study. And uh, pre and post training, they assessed lean body mass via DEXA type 1 and type 2 muscle fiber cross-sectional area via biopsy, um, one rep max strength for leg press and knee extensions, and uh, physical function test, uh, chair rise time test. Um, Those were assessed at baseline after 12 weeks of training and after 24 weeks of training. And the thing to note is in this study, there were plenty of quote-unquote non-responders for each discrete variable. Like there were plenty of people who didn't uh, gain that much lean mass, plenty of people who didn't experience robust increases in fiber cross-sectional area, a handful of people who didn't experience strength gains, etc. But every single individual in this study uh, experienced meaningful increases in at least one of these things. So, like, and the other thing to note, kind of going back to the to the second point of just keep training, for each discrete variable, there were fewer people who were deemed non-responders at 24 weeks than at 12 weeks. And, and here are two good quotes just from the abstract. Non-responsiveness was not apparent in any subject, as a positive adaptive response on at least one training outcome was apparent in every subject. And, quote, the level of responsiveness was strongly affected by the duration of the exercise intervention, with more positive responses following more prolonged exercise training. So, like this, this will also, I think be hard to say without 
potentially coming off as dismissive, but like there are there are benefits to training that you probably care about that may not be the the number one main thing you're interested in. That if you just kind of are willing to expand the scope of the responses that you're that you're willing to be interested in and assess and look at, <clears throat> there will probably be something that's going right for you. So if you're trying to, you know, just just gain as much muscle as possible head to toe, put on some strength, etc., uh, and you're you're a low responder to hypertrophy style training, you know, it could be that that becoming a mass monster isn't in the cards, but you might have a muscle group or two that responds pretty well. So if you get more granular with your assessments and instead of just looking at like total lean mass, you kind of look at like, oh, I'm going to take a upper arm circumference measure, lower arm circumference measure, upper thigh, calf, uh, waist, chest, whatever. Like you might find a few muscles that do respond pretty well. Uh, you can keep track of them, be proud of them. Uh, if you're trying to build muscle and get stronger, like there are just fewer strength non-responders than hypertrophy non-responders. Um, so, I mean, like, even if you're not putting that much muscle on your frame, you will probably still get stronger and become generally more physically capable. Like there, there are positive training related things that are happening, which may not necessarily be the, the just level a one type thing you were the most interested in. Um, you know, like like there there will probably still be plenty of of uh, physical aspects that are moving in the right direction. So, if you're willing to just kind of like expand your horizons and look at more total variables, you will probably find something that that is going pretty well for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the term mass monster because it is something I wanted to clear up. A lot of people have asked me why I trans because I had a really good thing going. I was a very successful pro natural bodybuilder. And a lot of people asked why I transitioned to pro natural classic bodybuilding, which was a pretty huge change of direction for me. And it really comes down to like for some people being a mass monster just isn't in the cards like you mentioned. But, you know, for me, it was more of a stylistic thing. I was looking around the, the natural bodybuilding landscape and it was just getting grotesque. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had these mass monsters getting on stage 160, <laughs> 165 pounds on these pro natural bodybuilding stages. So I'm glad that that we've expanded the sport and, and opened up classic bodybuilding for a more a more streamlined and frankly, less grotesque physique. Yeah, totally fair. Yeah. Uh, OK, so the the fifth thing you could potentially do is experiment with different training styles. So. Uh, I'm going to go back to the Carniero paper that I uh, talked about quite a bit two episodes ago. Uh, title is Different Load Intensity Transition Schemes to Avoid Plateau and No Response in Lean Body Mass Gain in Postmenopausal Women. And so I, I'm not going to talk about this study in a ton of detail again because I, I already did two episodes ago. Um, but just as a very brief refresher, this was a 24-week crossover study where subjects completed 12 weeks of training at a moderate intensity, so 8 to 12 rep max loads, and 12 weeks of training at a low intensity, so 27 to 31 rep max loads, in a randomized order. So half of them started with moderate load training for 12 weeks, followed by low load training for 12 weeks, and the other half just went the opposite order. 12 weeks of low load training, followed by 12 weeks of moderate load training. And as I uh, discussed in the previous segment, um, 
Some individuals who did really, really well with moderate load training really didn't do well with low load training. They experienced a ton of hypertrophy training in the 8 to 12 rep max range and experienced uh, either much smaller gains in hypertrophy or even experienced decreases in lean soft tissue mass of the thighs following 12 weeks of low load training and vice versa. Some people did really, really well with low load training and just really didn't get much, if anything, out of moderate load training. So it, it could simply be a matter of uh, finding a training style that, that works well for you, which may not be the training style that works the best on average. And specifically to this conversation about low responders, high responders to training, non-responders to training, um, one thing we can do uh, with the data in this in this study since uh, like since individual results were reported is you can just look to see uh, following 12 weeks of training who would have been termed a low responder to training versus a high responder to training just using a median split like who got better gains than average versus who got worse gains than average uh, well not average 50th percentile you know what I'm saying um, and then after 24 weeks so after an additional 12 weeks of training who who, who who was previously a high responder is now still a high responder uh, versus who was a low responder who is now a high responder who was a who was a low responder who's still a low responder who was a high responder who's now a low responder you know just just looking to see how many of those categorizations would have been shuffled up and then also um you know during the first 12 weeks of training how many people would have initially been termed non-responders who suddenly became responders after an additional 12 weeks of training with a different training style. And again, non-responder being defined here as people who experienced increases in lean soft tissue mass of the thigh that were smaller than the kind of technical measurement error of the machine being used. And so when you do that analysis, a full third of the people uh, in this study, their uh, like high versus low responder classification would have flipped. So uh, out of 24 total people in the study, um, eight of them flipped. So either they were previously high responders after 12 weeks of training and became low responders after 24 weeks of training, or they were low responders after 12 weeks of training and became high responders after 24 weeks of training. And at times, this was actually uh, uh, pretty, pretty intense changes. So... Uh, just looking at, at the individual results, following the full 24 weeks of training, the individuals in this study who experienced the third and fourth most total amount of hypertrophy following the full 24 weeks of training would have been classified as low responders following the first 12 weeks of training. So, you know, that that's uh, just just downstream of spending 12 weeks of training doing a style of training that they simply responded much, much better to than they did the style of training in the first 12 weeks. And then for responders versus non-responders, like in in 12-week studies, we typically see that between like a quarter and a third of folks you would term non-responders, like people who experience gains in strength or gains in muscle mass smaller than kind of the typical measurement error, just day-to-day -day biological variability. Uh, and that's what we saw in this study after 12 weeks. So out of 24 subjects, seven of them would have been termed non-responders. Uh, after the first three months of training, they experienced gains in lean soft tissue mass of the thighs. 
that were smaller than the measurement error of the machine. After 24 weeks of training, only two people would have still been termed non-responders. So both continuing to train and finding a training style that worked better for them cut the non-response rate down from 7 out of 24 to 2 out of 24. So, um, yeah, like, it's... I, I think that people on the whole, uh, do, do have maybe a bit too much faith in kind of the, the, uh, collective unconscious of the fitness community and not enough faith in their own experience and their, their ability to interpret their own experience. Like I, I I see a lot of people who, uh, you know, go online and say like, hey, I want to get stronger. What programs will help me do that? They look around, they find a program that a lot of people have done, generally has good reviews, seem to work well, and they do it, and it, it doesn't work particularly well for them. Either they don't get stronger at all, or they don't get much stronger, and, and they just kind of throw their hands up and say, well, this is a good program. It works. Like, it's worked for thousands of people. It didn't seem to work for me, so, man, like, I, I guess getting stronger just isn't in the cards. Um, whereas like, I, I think probably a more productive thing to do would be either to look at kind of what the, what the characteristics of that training program were, the, the overall level of volume, overall level of intensity, uh, training frequency, and, and just say like, okay, that didn't work. Let's just do the opposite. Like if it was a low volume program, let's try a high volume program. If it was a high intensity program, let's try a lower intensity program. And just and just, you know, basically start troubleshooting from there. Like I know what what didn't work. So let's just try something different and see if that works. Or, you know, just kind of going back to the well and saying, "Hey, let's try to find another generally effective, pretty well-reviewed program that doesn't look anything at all like that one that didn't work for me." Like that's um I, I, I think that uh, more people should do that. Like, don't, yeah. don't, uh, so, I mean, and this, this can even go to levels that I, like, I don't want to sound mean, but to, to an extent that, like, I find I have a difficult time empathizing with, uh, like, like, someone will start training and get on generally it's just like a typical linear progression type program, like starting strength, strong lift, something like that. And they put in two years under the bar, uh, on a single training program. And like, they've been hitting a wall, deloading, building back up, hitting a wall, deloading, building back up over that entire time span, never built much muscle, never got particularly stronger, but it's like, well, people say these are good programs and I should be able to ride it to a 405 squat and I only squat 220. So like, I guess I just need to keep doing this. Um, and then, you know, they just don't get there and decide like, Oh, well, resistance train just isn't for me or I must be fucking up and doing something wrong. I would say like the only thing you fucked up there is just sticking with a program for two years that clearly doesn't work for you. Um, yeah, like I, 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 I don't know. Like th- this is another rant, but I I think that like the there's been so much so much invective thrown the way of of pro uh, quote unquote program hoppers over the years, 
that now there are a lot of people who are afraid to ever change their training program. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like sometimes you just need to change your training program. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, you, you look at, um, you know, you, you talked about, you know, things you can do about it. Keep training, yeah. uh, potentially train more, train harder. And those two, uh, approaches, you know, someone who's, who is very, uh, you know, someone who speaks very poorly of quote unquote program hoppers, they're they're hearing that and saying, hell yeah, that's exactly what I've been saying. But but, you know, it, it is important to recognize that simply trying more than one thing does not make you a program hopper. Yeah. Right. So like, yeah, if you if you try a program and, and within the first four to eight weeks, it's not working, but you gen generally enjoy it. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that is a situation where you say, OK, well, maybe, you know, try some modifications to do a little more, alter volume intensity, or maybe just stick with it for eight more weeks and see if the needle starts moving. But yeah, like you said, I mean, the the, the two things that, that do get a little bit baffling is the people who are 200 pounds away from their squat goal, you know, it's they've been doing this program. It's got them like 10 pounds over the last year. And it's like, if you think you're going to make up the next 200 pounds, how is that going to occur? Like, yeah. Unless you're going to be doing this for 40 years and, and like that's the, the plan here, you know, like just mathematically, how do you think doing the same thing with this rate of progress is going to get you to where where your stated goal is? Well, if scientists ever solve human aging, like, yeah, and now you have a 500 year runway, maybe. Yeah, but 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 you you do sometimes see these situations where you're like you extrapolate out the gains you're getting, and if anything, they're going to get worse, not better, over time. If you keep doing, you know, it should be yeah. somewhat logarithmic, generally speaking. Yeah, doing the same exact approach. Um, but yeah, you you look at it and you're like, maybe program hopping. You know, with a little caveat that you're giving the program enough time to do something. Maybe that's actually the right path forward. Uh, and like you said, there's also a tendency in the space for people to be so hung up on the collective understanding that they reject their own experience that's yeah. literally right in front of their eyes. And like, I have observed some internet chatter where someone's like, you know, I tried this program that has less set volume than the going meta analysis that everyone likes. And it seemed to work for me, but that's impossible. And it's like, well... It's not though. Yeah. It literally happened. Yeah. And we should expect a great deal of variability from person to person because of all the reasons you've covered. So yeah. it, it is important that like some people are so uh, dismissive of program hoppers that some people get locked into this area where they're like, well, whatever works for everyone has to be best for me. And if I ever change that, then I've demonstrated a lack of commitment to the program, which is bad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're if you're trying new training programs every two weeks, yeah, then you're a program hopper. Like yeah, you, yeah. you got to give it time to see if it's working. But if you've been on a program for three to six months, uh, and and you've given it a real honest shot, and it's not doing much for you, try something else. Like that, that's not program hopping. That's yeah. uh, like. I know this is an apocryphal quote, but the the quote that's often attributed to Einstein, like insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different response. Um, I, I think that applies here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. And then uh, the last thing that you could potentially do is take an even more 
uh, expansive view of the benefits you would like to see from training um, and or potentially not just try a different style of programming for a particular fitness outcome, but potentially just see if there's other forms of training that that click better with you. So, uh, for example, like you could very well be a low responder for strength and hypertrophy and still experience great improvements in blood pressure, blood lipids, bone health, uh, mood, sleep, uh, uh, decreasing the rate of cognitive aging, uh, improved blood glucose regulation, and probably a half dozen other things from continuing to train. So like you may not be seeing the gains in muscle mass that you want uh, or strength that you want, but training could still be doing a ton of other positive things for you that, you know, like, like ultimately, ultimately, I I think that when you look back on it, uh, as you're getting older, like you're, you're probably not going to be like that resentful or upset that you weren't like the biggest guy at every gym you went into. But if you're you know, getting into your 70s and you're still in pretty good health and you look around at some of your other peers who didn't really do much consistent exercise throughout their lifespan and they're like things are starting to go downhill for them a little bit, they'll say, you know what? I never got as big as I wanted to, but I'm I'm glad I did all of that training. Yeah. Um, And then for like on, on the topic of of trying to maybe see if there's just a an entirely different style of training that you respond well to and that you like. Um, a, a study that I want to talk about by Caravirta and colleagues from 2011, uh, individual responses to combined endurance and strength training in older adults. Uh, there were 53 sub, there were three groups in this study. I'm only going to talk about one of them. Uh, but there was a group of 53 subjects who did 21 weeks of both resistance and endurance training. Uh, and there's a, a figure from the study that we can put up on the screen here if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, but just looking at the correlation in gains in VO2 peak and uh, uh, maximum voluntary contraction strength, I think I think of the quads is what they were measuring. Um there was no correlation at all between those two things. Like people who responded well to endurance training or to the aerobic part of the intervention, um, like that, like responding well in terms of gains in VO2 peak was completely unpredictive of whether you would also gain a lot of strength. Uh, if you gained a lot of strength, that was completely unpredictive of whether you'd experience large gains in aerobic fitness. Uh, and so you know, I, I think that um, I think that oftentimes, like, I, I think a lot of this comes back to like motivation, almost. Like, what? Why are you training in the first place? Like, what? What are you hoping to get out of it? Uh, and like, I've I've talked to quite a few people who, like had been lifting for a long, like they, they hit me up cause they'd been lifting for a while and they, they just weren't seeing the responses to training that they wanted. Um, and you know, like I would be asking them like, Hey, why, why are you doing this in the first place? Like what, what are you hoping to achieve? And it's like, Oh, well, you know, I'm trying to get as, as muscular and strong as possible. And it's like, 
yeah, but why? Like, what's what's underpinning that? And like for for a few of them, it was like, well, you know, like I've I've heard that it's it's good for longevity. Like people who are who have more strength and more muscle mass when they hit like 50, 60 years old tend to have longer lifespans. Like ultimately, I, I'm just doing this to try to be healthy. So it's like, man. So first, you don't you don't need to be a mass monster in the first place to do that. Um, and second, like if you're hitting me up because you're you're so frustrated about the the relatively poor responses you're seeing to resistance training, you know that like doing aerobic training is also good for longevity. Uh, why don't you give that a shot? And a handful of them gave it a shot and they're like, you know what? Like, I don't know why I was lifting in the first place. I never particularly liked it. It wasn't fun. And uh, guess what? I like biking or I like running. Thanks for putting me down this road. And so on one hand, kind of shooting myself in the foot because I don't I don't put out aerobic training information that is taking a potential future customer out of my revenue streams. But uh, ultimately, I mean, I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> so so ultimately, if you if you like lifting, um, like if you're if you're coming at this from a like like purely intrinsic motivation, like a lot of this shouldn't really be an issue in the first place. Like, you know, maybe you would just like to see larger gains because you'd like to make larger gains. Um, but if you have like a true intrinsic motivation here, especially if you're kind of like process oriented about it and you're lifting because you like to lift, uh, you probably won't be the type of person who's getting like super, super frustrated about this because like whether or not you're getting super huge and super strong, like you're continuing to lift because you like to. Uh, if you've made it to this point in the video and you're still thinking like, man, like I, I really want to be as big and strong as possible, but like this is really frustrating because like I don't really even like lifting that much. I just want what I can get out of, like what I've been told I will get out of lifting. I think at that point it's it may not be a terrible idea to just like assess motivation and see like why are you doing this in the first place? Cause I gotta tell you, like I I also know plenty of people who do respond really well to training who just like didn't like training all that much. And guess what? They don't stick with training. Um like they they just don't. Like they get big and get strong and then just get bored of it in five years and say yeah, like, fuck it. I never liked doing that. I'm going to stop. And then for them, it becomes like a fun fact where later in life, they're like, oh, yeah, like 20 years ago, I was huge. Would you even believe it? Yeah. 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 So, you know, if you're if you are like that, that frustrated, that that does suggest at least to some extent a lack of like process oriented intrinsic motivation. So if you're going down that road, it it probably wouldn't be a terrible idea to just try some completely different form of exercise that regardless of the gains you get from it, you just like doing it. It's it's fun. And so, so you're going to be much more likely to stick with it. And there is a decent chance that if you're frustrated because of the lack of gains you're getting to resistance training, you very well could respond very well to some other form of exercise. Like, you know, maybe you've been lifting for two or three years. You're not particularly big. You're not particularly strong. You start doing some aerobic training and six months later, you have a very competitive 5k time like that. 
that may just be a, a more productive road to go down. Yeah. And I think this conversation about broadening your horizons about what training can look like and what it can bring you, mm-hmm. uh, that really resonates with me in, in a way that really didn't have anything to do with being frustrated with my response to training. Like, you know, that I've had a, a thing going on for quite some time now with uh, kind of like a nerve entrapment that has made it very, very difficult to do uh, just about any squat or deadlift variations without a pretty substantial amount of pain. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the type of pain that actually isn't just like achy, but really alters kind of day-to-day enjoyment of of life. Yeah. Uh, And and so, you know, I had the the road road to Athens segment where I was like, oh, maybe I'll get back into long distance running. Now, unfortunately, that aggravated the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And so eventually that became uh, similarly frustrating. But it was the same idea of like, can I find a way to do exercise that is enjoyable and brings me some of these benefits? Like, obviously, it's not going to make me huge, but how will it affect my mood, my sleep, thing, you know, aging, things like that? So, uh, wh- you know, whether you're running into frustration because of Uh, you know, lack of progress, you know, being dissatisfied with your gains, or you're running into frustration because of the way you like to train is currently not compatible with what makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. And you have to make some, uh, some adjustments, whether they're temporary or permanent, uh, pertaining to some limitations. It is sometimes helpful to go back to the drawing board and have a broader scope of what exercise looks like and what it can do for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just on, on kind of like a meta level, um, like, I, I think that it's worth asking, like, wh- whether you plan on, like, competing in anything, because, uh, like, if you do, then it is probably worth being at least a little concerned about, like, oh, like, how, how large are the, are the gains I'm experiencing? How do my results stack up to other people? But, like, if not, the thing is, like, exercise is just good. Uh, aerobic exercise is good. Group exercise is good. Resistance exercise is good. Like, it's just good to find things that get you moving. And so if if you don't have, like, competitive aspirations in any particular strength, physique, sport, aerobic sport, like, anything, just find, just find things you enjoy doing. Um, and that should, <laughs> I mean, that, that should take care of a lot of it. Um... I mean, yeah, like th- there have been, there have been plenty of things in my, I like, so I, I think a pretty good example for me, at least like historically is basketball. Like I, I've made no bones about it. Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way they dribble up and down the court. Little, little throwback for the nineties kids listening. Um, but like that was a great lyric, by the way. Who was, was that? Lil Bow Wow. That was Lil Bow Wow. Yeah, yeah. That was a... I think from Like Mike. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So I mean, dude, I'm I'm like five ten on a good day, uh, and I'm like relatively fast, can jump reasonably well, have reasonably good hand eye coordination. But like once I got onto like the AAU circuit and like uh like higher levels of basketball like i mean i just i didn't pick the right parents for it and so you know like i i went from being among the better players in like youth leagues i played in and like uh for the school i played at uh to being like 
one of the worst players uh and you know on some of the teams i i was on i didn't get that much time off of the bench but like i don't know i didn't care uh it it was boring to sit on the bench during the games but uh i mean practice was still sick like cuz i just love playing basketball um and so like yeah like i i had a strong intrinsic motivation to keep doing it even though at least at that level the the results that i was seeing for the work i was putting in were way way smaller than than those of my peers but i was like this is this is fine cuz i i just like doing it it's fun yeah um and so i mean <laughs> And I think one of the things that helped me a lot with that is like, I was competitive in the, in the sense of like, you know, this, this, this is a sport, they're keeping score, there's a winner and a loser. But by that time, like in high school, I already had the mindset of like, I can, I can see where I'm at in this sport. Like, I'm not getting a D1 scholarship to play at the next level. I'm certainly not going pro. So like, I'm doing this for fun and it's, yeah. it's a good time. Um, and so like, yeah, that's, uh, I, that's a perspective just, just to keep in mind. Like if you're doing something to compete it might be worth comparing yourself against others. If you're really just doing it for personal satisfaction, longevity, whatever, just, just, just find things you like doing. Um, and if what you like doing that gets you active differs from what someone on the internet is saying you should be doing just ignore them because there's an extremely good chance they're wrong like whatever sort of exercise you like is almost assuredly good exercise yep all right so let's just wrap this up uh let's do it just a a little a little recap here uh and and some some implications so the first thing going all the way back to the beginning is almost no matter what you're experiencing in the gym if you're concerned man like i think i think there's something wrong with me like things don't seem to be going right just take a deep breath it's okay there is an incredibly good chance that whatever you're experiencing is completely normal completely okay completely fine there's just a tremendous degree of variability in terms of the responses people see to training. Um, that is like the, the variability is larger than I think people realize and whatever you're experiencing is probably within two standard deviations of the mean, very normal shit. It's just people experience very different responses to training. And, and that applies to both above and below average responses. Like, if you think like, oh shit, like am I am I the god of resistance training because I've only been lifting six months and I squat four oh five? Like, no, probably not. Like you're doing better than average, but you're probably like that that is also perfectly normal as well. Like it's above average, but that's that's not an outlier response. Whatever you're experiencing is probably just normal and fine. Um the next thing is uh like just keep in mind as you're out there on the internet um or in or even in the gym like what you see on a day-to-day basis that you might be comparing yourself against uh is almost assured to be a skewed sample so uh like that's clearly true for social media like the the people who pop up in your discover feed or whatever for physique sports strength sports whatever 
those are almost always people who just have very above average responses to resistance training. Uh, folks find that interesting. That's why they get more likes. That's why the algorithms are serving them to you. Um, so what what you come across online is an extremely skewed sample. And if you're using that to set your expectations, there's there's a decent chance you'll you'll probably wind up disappointed. And think that even if you're having like the perfectly average response to training, you will still perceive it to be below average because it's below the average of what you're seeing on social media on a day-to-day basis. But what you're seeing on social media is a severely skewed sample. Um, but even like what you see in the gym is probably at least to some extent a skewed sample as well. Like if, if you go in the weight room and most people at your gym who you see lifting weights all the time, if they tend to be quite a bit larger or uh, stronger than you, like that is probably also a skewed sample. Cause the thing is like folks tend to self-select into the forms of exercise they respond well to. And so if you're seeing the same regulars going to the gym all the time over months or years, those people who stick with training are, are generally people who have on average above average responses to training. And that's probably why, why they stick with it compared to some other form of exercise and this generalizes as well. Like the people who, uh, like if you go down to a local 5K, like not even some sort of like super prestigious track and field event, the people competing in that 5K probably have at least slightly better responses to aerobic training than the average person does, which is why they're the type of person who runs 5Ks and likes doing that. So um, yeah, don't don't be hard on yourself and just keep in mind that that what you're seeing, like there's a pretty decent chance that you are being too hard on yourself and thinking that what you're experiencing is further below average than it actually is. Like plenty of power, like, and this is true for competitors as well. Like plenty of power lifters who aren't even that competitive at local meets, maybe great responders to resistance training. It's just, they're not great responders to resistance training compared to other people who compete in this sport. So just just keep all of that in mind. Like you, there is a very good chance that you are doing better than you think you are. Um, then uh, I think that another like implication here is that like there's a tendency, I think for people to give, excessive deference to people who are particularly strong or who have a particularly good physique. Um, like people just assume that like, yeah, if, if this person is really strong and jacked, they must know what they're talking about. Um, or if someone isn't as strong and isn't as jacked as someone else, like, Oh, like they either don't know what they're talking about or they're just not putting in the work. And like, I do think that that is probably directionally true on some level. Like, I I think if you took the entire universe of people who deadlift 800 pounds and the entire universe of people who deadlift 200 pounds, eh, that's not a great example, 400 pounds. The the 800-pound deadlifters do probably know more about deadlifting on average than the 400-pound deadlifters do, generally just because, I mean, they've been been doing it longer. If they, they're probably... they're probably competing if they pull 800 pounds, so they've probably devoted more time and headspace into thinking about it and whatnot. So, like, there is probably that rough correlation, but it's not 
nearly as strong of a correlation as I, as I think a lot of people assume. Like there there are a lot of very very bright lifters and coaches who just didn't have the best genetic draw for for lifting and they know what they're doing uh they're they're good li- or like they're they know how to train themselves or if they're coaches they know how to train other people but like they're not going to squat 800 bench 500 whatever just cuz they didn't pick the right parents for it and that's totally fine so don't uh immediately assume someone either isn't training hard or don't know what they're talking about just because they're not freaky huge freaky jacked super strong and conversely don't automatically assume someone knows what they're talking about because they are super strong or super jacked. Like there are, there are plenty of people who just picked tremendously good parents for resistance training who who don't who don't have any fucking idea what they're doing. Um yeah, they they just they just lucked into a good situation. Uh and then finally just just to recap, like if you are struggling with your results, some things that you could try to get things moving in the right direction. Uh one, make sure you have your ducks in a row outside the gym. Two, just keep training. Small gains do still add up over time. Three, uh if you have the the motivation and capacity to do so, in general, if you train more or train harder, that will tend to lead to better results. Uh Four, measure more variables, like, you know, strength might be going well, even if you're not building a ton of muscle or vice versa. Uh, Five, experiment with different training styles. This does not conflict with continuing to train. You know, you can train more, you can train harder, you can keep training, but if none of that's working, just try training differently. Uh, There might be a different style of training that you respond well to that maybe does differ from the norms. And... Trust your own experiences there, and and don't be afraid to experiment and troubleshoot. Um, and uh, finally, like I- embrace the other benefits of training beyond purely physical capacity slash body shape. Those those gains in health markers, longevity, uh, mental health, sleep, etc. Like th- those are real tangible benefits that you can see from training even if you're not putting on all of the muscle you want to, like it is still doing beneficial things for you. Um, and you know, if you feel like you're banging your head against the wall and you're not seeing the results you want, and you just don't like the training you're doing, there is absolutely nothing wrong with just trying to find a different overall style of training that you both respond better to and that you just like doing more that you, that you find more, kind of intrinsic enjoyment in. And ultimately that's going to be much more strongly predictive of whether you do it for a long time and whether, you know, whether you stick with it long enough to see notable benefits, both physically and in terms of, you know, mental health, longevity, uh, all of that other good stuff. Awesome. Yeah. That, that is a ton of really good information. Uh, about heterogeneity and responses to training, right? So I think this has been a really great episode because it helps people understand how much variability is normal, mm-hmm. you know, when, when looking at how people respond to different training. Uh, and then more practically speaking, if I suspect that I have kind of below average responses to training, what can I actually do about that moving forward, right? So I think it was a really well-rounded episode. I know a lot of people... Uh, in Trex Nation, the Trex Army is what they call themselves. They're going to be upset. This is a very Greg-heavy show. But 
don't don't be upset. Don't be worried. I'm going to be coming back next week with uh, a segment about mindfulness and how that might uh, have some applications within the fitness world. So this uh, this particular episode very tra- training heavy, but ultimately answered a lot of questions that a lot of people have out there in the world. I have no idea how the fuck I thought I was going to get through that in 45 minutes. Uh, I don't know. I th- if I that, had to that's, speculate, that's one of my hardest bag fumbles I, of all time. So I don't want to be uncharitable with my assumptions, but when I went for like an hour and a half on reverse dieting, I mentioned in the aftermath that I had set the new record for delusion and misunderstanding how long my segment would be. And when I go back and edit, I am going to tally things up. Part of me feels like you were just trying to break the record. I, I truly was not. I I looked at my outline and thought, yeah, like I 30 minutes is going to be pushing it, but I can round this out in 45. <laughs> uh, not at all. I don't I don't have a great a great grasp on how long things take. Well, the, the good thing about making that exact same mistake is that I can have empathy and truly understand like, yeah, with the reverse dieting, I looked back at the outline. I was like, why? Why did I think that would take 20 minutes? Yeah, no, there's I, no reason to believe it. I, I just fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, at least at least I didn't get distracted by uh, pondering whether there were babies in any of these samples of, yeah. of the studies I talked about. That's true. Um, is anyone going to get that? I think I edited that out of the previous episode. Yeah, you did. That's fine. That's yeah. that. That's a little one for us. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so to, to prevent any other detours or threats to our continuity in the episode, I'm going to go ahead and cut it. Uh, as always, thanks so much for joining us, and we will be back soon with another another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.